Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome to Cedar Mill. Um, good to be with you this morning as we jump into our new series. I want to say as we, as we get started here that this is one of those series where I'm really excited about these next few weeks. I'm also a little nervous um, because worship is such a huge topic and there's a part of me that's scared that we're not going to fully embrace it or grasp it or uh, dive deeply enough into it together that it will truly change us. And so I'm going to ask you today to, with the best of your ability, engage this subject with us, um, not just this morning, but over the next few weeks. Because as I've been thinking about uh, the subject of worship um, here lately as we've prepared for this, I've come to realize this. It is at the very center of what it means to live the Christian life, worship. Uh, I, I believe worship is at the very heart of what it means to experience the transforming power of Jesus. There's, actually, it is impossible to be transformed by Jesus without fully engaging and stepping into and understanding more richly this, this idea of worship. It's at, the very, it's at the very core of what I believe it means to be the church. A people who worship God in this world. That is maybe one of the best definitions of the church. And so we must, friends, get this one right. We must understand the subject of worship if we are going to truly be God's people. Perhaps this is why Paul, when he is writing to the early church, to the church at Rome, but also um, to, to you and me, to us, he says this, talking about worship, he says... I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you. In the King James, he says, I beseech you. And I don't know what that means, but it sounds intense. Um, Be a worshiping people, Paul says. That's his, his, his cry, his deep, urgent cry. You must not miss on this one. And so this morning, I want to start us off, and I want to talk a little bit about what is worship. And this is what Paul says. He says, I urge you, and then he goes on to say to the church, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul defines worship for the Romans. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is true and proper worship. Eugene Peterson, and his translation of the message, says it this way. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Just give it to Him. Use every part of your life to worship Him. And Paul, in this passage, he uses the Greek word for worship, latreia, which means that to which a person gives their whole life. And that's maybe our first definition of worship. Throughout this series, I hope that you'll be hit with many, many different definitions and perspectives on worship. And this is our first one. Worship is the offering of your everyday life to God. It's seeing everything you do from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep at night as a way of saying, the most important thing in my life, God, is you. You see, friends, in this series, we will talk about the weekly moment when we gather together to sing and worship as a community. But here's the truth. We will never understand this moment. We will never understand our moments of corporate worship if we do not see them in the larger context of worship that the Bible talks about. And the Bible says this, first and foremost, your whole life is an act of worship. 
Here's another definition of worship. Ascribing ultimate value to something. Using your entire person, your whole life, to declare that something is worthy of your full and complete allegiance. What the Bible says about worship, friends, is actually a little different than what most people think. When most people think of worship, they wonder if they're worshiping or not. And that is not the question that the Bible asks. The Bible does not divide people up into worshipers and non-worshipers. No, the Bible says we are divided up instead into people who worship the living triune God and people who worship something else. The question isn't, do you worship? Because everybody worships. We were created to worship. It's in our very nature to worship. Everybody Every single person who walks this planet is at this very instance treating something as ultimate in their life. The question is, is that something, is that someone, the living triune God of the Bible? This is why, by the way, the very first commandment reads this way. Listen to the very nuanced language here. Exodus chapter 20, commandment number one of the Big Ten. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see what that verse implies or acknowledges? That there are other gods, small g, options out there? There are other options, there are other things you can put in the God slot in your life? And this acknowledgement runs all throughout Scripture. It starts right here at the beginning and goes all the way through. Everyone has a God. Something that is most valuable, more valuable to them than anything else. The place where they find their identity and place their full allegiance. Everyone has something they worship. I cannot pound this point into you um, strong enough. God, the Bible says, make God your God. Make God the one you worship. Put Him first, not something else. Not some other religion. Not money. Not success. Not fame. Not your kids. Not a habit or a lifestyle. Not comfort or pleasure. Not even increased status through religious achievement. Put nothing else above God. Give your allegiance to nothing more than Him. Biblical worship says, put God first. David talks about this principle. He talks about this this desire and this call to make God preeminent and predominant in our lives. Listen to how David, one of the, the greatest worshipers in all of the Bible, listen to how he talks about worship. This is Psalm 34. He says it this way. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What does it mean to magnify? Well, when we magnify an object, we take a lens or a microscope or a telescope and we, and we, and we use that lens to make the object bigger, right? To make it bigger to us than it was before. We use a microscope or a telescope to, to focus on it, to devote ourselves to studying it, to give our attention to that thing over above everything else in the world. And, and what's great about this verse is that David is saying, do that thing to God. Magnify the Lord. That's what it looks like to worship. And, and what's amazing about that, what's so significant about those very simple words, is this kind of contradictory reality. As human beings, we tend not to do that. 
Our natural inclination as fallen sinful people is not to magnify the Lord. It's actually to magnify ourselves. We get focused on us. We like to magnify us. We like to highlight and and, enlarge our circumstances and the things in our life that we're dealing with. And do you know what we tend to magnify perhaps more than anything else? Our problems? Do you ever do this? Do you ever find that that you're focused on and, and highlighting and making your problems bigger than they really are? That your problems are in fact sometimes the thing in your life that is getting the most attention and or focus? Does this ever happen to anyone else in the room besides just me? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night or lay in bed and you can't fall asleep because you're just thinking about money? And most of the time you're not thinking about the fact that you have too much of it and you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do with all this money, God? that you've just dumped in my lap. No, most of the time it's about bills that you're not sure you're going to be able to pay or trips that you're not certain you're going to be able to fund or maybe credit card debt or other expenses that that have come up in your life. And money, the worry, the deceitfulness of wealth, the Bible says the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth come in and choke the word, come in and choke out what God wants us to be focused on. You ever find that maybe laying in bed at night you think about your schedule? Anyone else? Just wonder, how in the world am I going to get everything done that I need to get done? Or maybe it's a relationship that's gone sideways in your life or a project that's hanging over your head at work or a situation with one of your kids, but there's something in your life that just seems bigger than you're able to handle. And in your mind, that thing just gets magnified. The Bible doesn't say, magnify your problems, people of God. That's not what the word says. You know, um, here's something funny. A few days um, before, remember a few weeks back, I did the uh, Abraham monologue with Joel Langstaff, and he was Isaac, and Lauren Bowen did a great job of writing that script, by the way. She wasn't here for that day, but she wrote the script that day. It was, it was one. It was fun. Except for two of us, I had to spend an exorbitant amount of time memorizing large chunks of material in a way that would be convincing to all of you when we tried to get up here and one of us pretended like they were an actor. And it was a very stressful thing for one of us. And again, I won't say who, but one of us lost a lot of sleep over that. And one night in particular, a few nights before the event, I woke up in the middle of the night because I had a nightmare. And the nightmare went like this. I was performing a wedding ceremony for this couple. I don't know the couple. I don't know why they asked me. I've never seen them before in my life. But I was doing this wedding, and as a part of their wedding, they had asked me to do a monologue. (laughs) I don't know why. And it seemed like weird, but that's how the dream went. And the wedding was starting, and it was just about to roll, and the bride was in the back with dad, and things were just about to happen. And all of a sudden, standing in front of the entire like congregation that had gathered, and this is all a dream, by the way, this is how it went down, I realized I don't remember my monologue. And I started to panic. Now, luckily, in the dream, I had a book in my hand, and in the book, the monologue was printed, but as I flipped frantically to try and find it, I could not find the page that the monologue was on. And as the time ticked you know, further and further, closer to the start of the event, I would get more and more panicked. And then all of a sudden, as this thing is just about to start, I looked out into the crowd, and I noticed in like the third or fourth row back, right over here, was sitting Andy Stanley. 
And and this, I don't know, Andy Stanley, he had a dad who was a famous pastor, Charles Stanley, and Andy himself is a pretty pretty famous pastor, and I listen to him sometimes. And now in this dream, I'm not only panicked that I'm going to ruin this wedding for this bride, and that all the people in the congregation would think I'm just a complete fool, but now Andy Stanley isn't even going to know what a failure I am as a pastor, and I'm absolutely terrified. And in this moment, thank the Lord, I woke up. And it was like 2.30 in the morning and I couldn't fall asleep for like two and a half hours. And so I spent two and a half hours in the middle of the night memorizing my lines. <laughs> because the thing that had gotten magnified in my life was this fear, this panic of not remembering my lines for the monologue, right? Friends, so many things want to move into our lives and be bigger than God. But in worship, in worship, what David tells us, in worship, we say to those things, no, no, you will not. God is bigger than you. God, in fact, is bigger than anything in this world, anything that I'm facing, any success that I'm experiencing, any pleasure that I've found, any stress or worry or struggle that is currently a part of my life. Worship says, I am going to refocus on God and I'm going to study Him again and remember Him again and dis- devote myself afresh to the fact that the God who is in control of this planet is also in control of my life. Magnify the Lord with me. And friends, this is the place where we start to see a connection between our lives of worship and our gathered together communal time of worship on Sundays. You see, one of the questions that often comes up from people is this. And they'll either ask it with their mouths or they'll ask it with their presence in church. But they'll ask this. If I worship God at home and at work and at the gym and so on, then why do I need to come and sing songs as part of the church? Well, friends, let me just give you one, one way of answering that question. And we'll answer that question a number of ways throughout this series. I'll answer the question this way um, with a statement, with a little bit of a story. Uh, I really love my wife. Some of you know that. Some of you know her. Um, but Amy is is one of the most fun, funny, loyal, honest, transparent people I've ever met. She has a great sense of humor, extremely witty. She loves it when I tell her that. Um, she's a great listener. I could go on and on and on up here about how phenomenal my wife is. She's just wonderful. She's a beautiful person. I just adore her. Now, hopefully, but you don't have to clap for her, but that's that's fine. Should I have her come up? That would be great. No, she'll, be, she'll kill me. She did not know I was going to do this today. Now, hopefully, here's the hopefully part. Um, this is the part where I'll pay for this later. This will get held over my head later. But stay with me. It's worth it for the illustration. Hopefully, as I live my everyday life, the message of my love for her is being communicated very clearly, very subtly, implicitly even, in an unspoken way. But hopefully, throughout just our life together, Amy sees and gets the message from me that I love her. Maybe it's in the way that I call her from work just to check in in the middle of the day. Or or maybe it's in the way I bring her home a tub of her favorite ice cream every now and then, even though she likes the expensive kind. Maybe it's in the way I plan a date night for the two of us, once every month or so. Um, Maybe... Maybe it's in the way I hold her hand when we go on a walk. Or maybe it's in the way I trim the shrubs on the front of our house, even though she's been asking me to do that for many, many weeks, and I just got around to it yesterday. I still did it. Or maybe maybe it's even in just the way that I smile. I find myself smiling when I look at her. Friends, hopefully, 
By the way I live my life, there are a lot of different subtle ways my wife gets the unspoken message. I love you. But sometimes, sometimes, even with all of these other things that are communicating, I love you to my wife, sometimes it is still extremely important, gentlemen, for me to say it. For me to very directly, very explicitly say the words to Amy, I love you. Friends, the Bible says this. The Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. And God certainly and absolutely calls his bride to live in a way that says, I love you in very subtle, unspoken, implicit ways. But sometimes, sometimes God knows that this relationship that we have with him needs to be declared. It needs to be spoken. It needs to be stated. And our worship of God needs to be expressed explicitly. Friends, that is our gathered together time of communal worship. It's the time when we explicitly magnify God. It's the time when we say out loud that He is above everything else in our lives. That He's not only at the very center of our individual lives, but He's at the very center of our communal life together. It's the time when we with our mouths declare that our ultimate allegiance is to Him. And even though so many other things in this world want to steal the worship of our lives, we refuse together to let them. And when we do this, friends, we not only demonstrate what worship is, we begin together to experience what worship does. And what worship does is it shapes and leads and transforms us, both as individuals and also as the church, as God's people, as a worshiping community. Friends, this is so profound. Do not miss this. This is the part of worship that so many people miss. This is why so many people follow Jesus for years, declare Christ as Savior, come to church, and yet experience absolutely no transformation or change in their life at all. It's because they miss this reality. And it can point it out to you in a lot of different ways, using a lot of different scriptures, but this morning I'm going to use Psalm 115. Psalm 115. In this passage, the psalmist is talking about people who treasure or worship idols. Those folks who are worshiping something other than God. Right? And this is what the psalmist says. He says, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. In other words, they're, they're worshiping something of this world. They're worshiping something of the creation, something in this realm, not the creator. And then this is what the psalmist says in verse 8 about those folks. Those folks who have settled for a lesser God who have given their allegiance to something besides the triune God of the Bible. Those who make them, he says, will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Here's what he's saying. Here's what the Bible says. You become like the God you worship. You are becoming like the God you worship. Because when you worship, you're determining your values. And when you worship, you're declaring your priorities. And when you worship, you're saying, what gets first place in my life? And you get shaped by that, whether you want to or not. 
You see, you can sit in here and say, I worship God all you want, but if you're truly giving your allegiance, giving your life, giving your loyalty to something else, that is the thing that is shaping you. That is what is determining who you are and who you are becoming. Friends, some of you know this. The word worship actually tells us this very truth in and of itself. The word worship comes from an old English phrase. Pastor Matt pointed this out to me this week. Um, the phrase, the, this is the phrase, worth shape. Worth shape. To be shaped by the worth of something. To be shaped by putting value in something. Worship is when you look at something and you say, that thing is so valuable, that thing is so important, that I will reorient my entire life around it. For some of us, it's comfort. For others of us, it's pleasure. And it gets more specific from there. But friends, whatever it is you're putting ultimate value in, that thing is shaping your heart, your soul, your life, your character. Listen to me, high school kids. This is big stuff. This is big stuff because every single day you are becoming the person you will be. You don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden you're someone that you have not been becoming for many, many months and weeks and, and years. You are being shaped by the worth you put on something else. If you are worshiping money, then you will, over time, be shaped by greed. If you are worshiping power, then you will be shaped by arrogance. If you worship comfort, then you will be shaped by apathy. If you worship approval, then you'll become a chameleon. If you worship achievement, then you will become, over time, a user of people and friends for your own purposes. Friends, be real careful, the Bible says, about what you worship, because what you worship will shape your heart. It will transform your life. Tim Teller tells a wonderful story that illustrates this point um, so clearly about how when we find value or worth in something and an ultimate end, it begins to draw us and change us and reorient the direction of our life. He says a woman inherits a piece of jewelry from her mother. It's actually a, a brooch. And she gets it and she looks at it and it's kind of nice, but she can't really tell and it looks a little old school. So she tosses it into her jewelry box and over time it just gets buried in there and she forgets about it. And then years later, after her mother's passed away, one day she's cleaning out her jewelry box and she discovers this brooch in there again. Well, she decides to take it to a jeweler to see if it's worth anything. And the jeweler takes it and he goes into the back and he puts it under his microscope, right? And he begins to magnify it and he studies it. And the more he looks at it, the more he spends time evaluating this piece, the more excited he begins to get. Because this jeweler is all of a sudden discovering that this is a piece that was long lost. It's actually a historic piece of jewelry that is literally priceless, worth more than every other piece of jewelry this jeweler has had in his office, in his possession, over a 25-year career. All of those pieces of jewelry put together do not compare to the value, to the worth of this one piece of jewelry. And Keller goes on to talk about what's happening here. He talks about the man's emotions and how his, his, his heart and his perspective and his life begin to shift in that very moment because the worth of this object is shaping his life. And then he says, and what will this man do? What will he do when he discovers the immense value of this brooch? He says, here's what's going to happen. He's going to come out and he's going to evangelize this woman. 
He's going to share the good news with her. He's going to tell her the overwhelmingly wonderful news that there's something immensely valuable available to her. That, that something that is so much more, uh, that has so much worth to it that she can't even possibly imagine is now available in her life. And he knows that this amazingly valuable thing will change her life forever. He says that is how worship works. That's how the gospel works. When we understand the value of the God we serve, when we understand how much God is worth, all of a sudden, the direction and the trajectory of our life changes. And the things that we sometimes feel we have to do or ought to do as Christ followers, just flow naturally. Does the man have to think to himself, you know, I really should share the good news of this brooch with the woman? Or does it just flow naturally out of his mouth when he understands the value of the brooch? The fruit of the Spirit are not things we strive for. They're things that flow out of us when we understand the value of God and we worship God. And then the Spirit leads us into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not as we ought to, but as, as a result of worshiping the invaluable God. That's what happens in our lives. Friends, this is why Jesus says this. The greatest commandment, Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus is talking here about worship. He's saying, what are you giving your heart to? Is it worthy? Is it really valuable? Is it worthy of your worship? Is it? Or is it not worthy? Will it disappoint you? He's saying the only thing worthy of your worship, worthy of the full devotion of your life and mind and heart and time and energies, the only thing in this world worthy of that kind of devotion is the Lord. And so he says, give it all to God. Make everything subservient to God. He's saying, let God shape your worth above and behind anything else. Because Jesus knows God's the only one who's worthy. And that's the final thing I want to remind us of today. And that's why we worship God. Friends, we worship God because of who He is. Because of the value He holds and what He's done. We worship God because of who He he is and what He's done. Um, Now, when we worship God, there are all sorts of fringe benefits that we get. There are these things that sort of come out of our worship that help us and give us the rich, full life that Jesus promised. But they are not the reasons we worship God. We do not worship God to get those things. Because if we're worshiping God just to get those things, then what are we really worshiping? Those things. Right? It doesn't work that way. We have to worship God simply for who He is and what He's done. Listen to the words from Revelation. These words give us a picture of the worship worship that happens in the heavenly realms where the heavenly creatures are in the presence of God and they see Him. It tells us that over and over again they are just overwhelmed and they say, God, You are worthy. You are worthy of my devotion. I've finally seen something that is worthy of my allegiance that can handle my devotion. The Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. See, everything else you might choose to worship is just something that God himself created. And by your will they were created and have their being. See, friends, that's why creation, everything in this world that's been created, including you and me, should point to the glory of the Creator. So many people stop short and they worship creation when they should let creation point them to the Creator. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you can look around and in nature, in this world, you can see the majesty, the glory, the splendor of our God. How many of you here have ever been to Yosemite National Park? It's one of my favorite places in the world. It's like one of the only things I really like about California. Um, sorry for any of you Californians there. But Yosemite is awesome. Um, and a few years back, my wife and I, um, my cousin was in town, and she was staying with us for a couple weeks, and we took her to Yosemite, and we did this hike called Clouds Rest. Anyone ever hiked Clouds Rest before? Yeah, super good, right, Pastor John? Um, this h- whole entire hike, you're kind of on the backside of this, of this peak, and you're climbing the backside of this peak, and at the very top, it gets, very, it gets narrow. It gets about six feet wide, and the path narrows and kind of goes up to the top like this, and on either side of that, about six feet wide path, it falls off thousands of feet to your potential death. So it's a real fun hike for some of you. But as you're hiking up, you kind of come up over the top, and when you get to the very crest of this, of this peak, when you get to the very top of Cloud's Rest, it's the first time you can see over to the other side. And what you find yourself looking at is the entire Yosemite Valley. Actually, I think you're about a mile above Half Dome. You're looking down on Half Dome, this enormous piece of granite sticking out of the earth, and you can see like the sheer face of El Capitan on the other side of the valley, and you are just blown away. I remember walking over the top, not expecting the view to be so majestic and just breaking into like sounds of, of, of excitement and glee and like, whoa! And I'm videoing my cousin who's scared of heights walking that path, kind of making fun of her. And then all of a sudden, like my, my jeers and kind of taunting turns to just sheer worship. God, you must be amazing. You're, you're insane. You're crazy. Your power and splendor and beauty and wonder is beyond what I can even fathom. If you made this, that's what creation is supposed to do, friends. That's what creation does for us. Friends, but, but it's not only who God is that causes us to worship. The Bible tells us it's what he's done it's not just that God is powerful and majestic and, and mighty and, and, and awesome. It's that that God loves us. It's that that God has shown mercy to us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Remember earlier we talked about Paul teaching the early church about worship? I left a section out. I'm not sure if you noticed that. Some of you did. But listen to what Paul says. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, right? I beseech you. In view of God's mercy, and that's the part we left out before, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see what drives the worship here? Is that the God, the almighty, all-powerful living God has shown you, has shown me, has shown us mercy. It's the mercy of God that causes us to bow down and worship. It's the, it's the grace of God that, that forces us to fall on our knees and give full devotion and allegiance and gratitude to Him. Friends, you see, when we fail to worship, 
What we do is we say we fail to understand and consider who God is and all that He's done for us. To live a life that doesn't worship God means you do not fully understand all that God has done for you. And friends, that's another reason we gather together. To remember that. Because I forget. I loved the song Allie sang here earlier. Allie and Cammy, Where they're like talking to their own soul. Did you catch that? It's like, awaken soul. Worship soul. Come on, soul. Don't you know who it is you're singing to? It's like there's this part of us that shrinks back and falls away from God and we need to even remind our own selves of who God is. And that's why we come together, to remind ourselves and to remind each other. And one of the ways we do that, friends, is through this meal that we call the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is a part of worship. It's a way that we worship real tangibly. We come to the table and we declare... We magnify the fact that our God loved us so much that he sent his son to die. We magnify the fact that our God is so amazing and so powerful that he defeated even the greatest force the world has ever known, and that's the force of death. You see, communion is just a chance to pull out your microscope and take a long, hard look at God. His mercy, His love, His grace, His power. You see, if that meal is not worship and does not drive us to worship, I do not know what is. Friends, when we come to the table, we explicitly declare through this meal that our God loved us so much that He gave His life. In a real, tangible way, we magnify this truth. Paul says it this way, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So friends, as we prepare to come to the table and magnify the power of God and the mercy of God, I want to ask you this. Is there anything competing with God for your worship these days? Is there anything in your life that's tempting your allegiance or holding more value in your heart than God? Is there anything in your life that has accidentally gotten magnified such that it is bigger than the Lord? I want to invite you today as we prepare to come to the table, to just take a minute and do some business with God and ask God that question. Some of you know the answer to that question right away. The thing that's competing with you, Lord, for my loyalty, for my devotion, for my allegiance, for my worship is this. Some of you might need need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you today. But get some clarity on that. Talk to the Lord about that. And then when you're ready, you come to the table and you declare through the bread and through the cup that that thing is not bigger than your God. It is not more valuable. It is not more important. And it does not deserve your worship. And then I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Sometime today, before the sun sets today and you go to bed tonight, tell one person. Just choose one person in your life that you want to share the one thing and just say, hey, the one thing in my life that's kind of competing with God for worship in my life these days is 
Because the Bible says that when we confess our sins to one another and we pray for each other, there's healing. God works in the midst of that. He, he writes some things. Just speaking those words out to another person sort of starts to flip things over and God gets back in his rightful place, the place of our full devotion and worship. So friends, this meal is an opportunity to get straightened out again. So take some time, do business with God. Come to the table when you're ready. Allie's going to give us just some space um, to come forward and grab the elements and go back to your seat and then to take them on your own. Whenever you're ready, you just receive the bread and you receive the cup on your own. We'll just take that together, but on our own in this space. And then we're going to close our time together by, again, explicitly declaring as one body, as one church, the worship of our Lord. We're going to explicitly magnify his name together in a couple closing songs. Does that sound all right? All right, let me pray, and then the tables will be open. Father, thank you for worship. Thank you that you know that the only thing we can worship and become who you created us to become is yourself. Thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for allowing us to worship you. Thank you for making a way for us to worship you. And for reminding us over and over again to put you first in our lives. For your glory, Lord, and for our good. I pray today, God, that you'd reveal places of competing worship in our minds and hearts. Help us to see maybe that which we we would not be able to see on our own. And then, God, provide the people for us to, to speak that truth to. We love you, Lord Jesus. We want to worship you. We long to worship you. Be first in our minds, in our hearts, and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.